0: RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Episode 18, Draft Memo from Gene Roddenberry to Jerry Eisenberg, Part 3, Circa July 1976. This episode of The Trek Files is sponsored by the official Star Trek Starships XL Editions, large format ships officially authorized by CBS Studios. Subscribe today and get the USS Voyager for 20% off and with free shipping. For details, visit st-starshipsxl.com/slash The Trek Files.
1: Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry
2: Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host, Dr. Trek Larry Nemachek.
1: Hey, Star Trek background fans, and yes, Trekophiles with an F. Welcome back to this episode of the Trek Files, and in particular, this is part three of our three part series on this amazing memo. This, hello, new friend of the franchise, let me put my arm around you, take you out for a drink, and tell you what the reality of all parts of Star Trek are about. This memo Gene wrote to Jerry Eisenberg, who was to be the new producer of the feature that would have been Planet of the Titans, which was never made. But at the time, we're estimating July 76, Gene didn't know that. But Gene, as not being in the driver's seat now for the first time ever with Star Trek, is getting his, um, his, uh, his experience and his uh, unique take on not just writing Star Trek, but the fandom and the corporate re- relations and all of that. And uh, the last part of this memo is exactly about fandom and the studio <laughs> And what to do and what not to do. And what probably no one else was going to tell poor Mr. Eisenberg. Here's a sample. And then hang on for this week's guest. The fan phenomenon cannot
0: be effectively employed in publicizing the film until the history of Star Trek fandom is understood. Whether true or not... Most Star Trek fans, and certainly all hardcore Trekkies, are convinced that Paramount is a soulless, tasteless, and probably corrupt entity. The fans see themselves as the group who kept Star Trek on the air its third year with an outpouring of a million letters to NBC, who kept faith with the show even when cancelled who kept the name alive in their clubs and fanzines, who lost money holding yearly Star Trek conventions, who instituted mail campaigns to their local stations insisting on Star Trek reruns, and who picketed these stations when the reruns were stopped. The fans insist that they are the ones who made the Star Trek phenomenon happen. The important thing is not whether these facts are true or partly true or totally false. These beliefs and these feelings exist.
2: Star Trek bands, you asked for bigger ships, and now you've got bigger ships. The official Star Trek Starships XL editions from Eagle Moss are twice as large as the standard models. Officially authorized by CBS Studios, each iconic ship is die cast and hand painted, and each comes with an in depth magazine featuring production artwork, highlights of the ship's history, design, and a breakdown of the technology on board, along with crew and weapons. Start your collection today with the 10-inch XL edition USS Voyager for only fifty-nine dollars and ninety-five cents with free shipping. New models ship every other month for the same low price with free shipping, and you may cancel your subscription at any time. For details and to order, visit st-starshipsxl.com/slash-the-track-files. Go big with the official Star Trek Starships XL editions. At saint starshipsxlcom dot com slash the track files.
1: <laughs> yes, we've been through so much of this memo already. It, it's it's. It's uh, gobsmacking how the, the scope of everything to do with Star Trek. It's, it's not just a little movie here we're talking about. It's a whole in, in, entity. Uh, the phenomenon now, the franchise that we talk about it. But this is 1976. People aren't used to thinking in those terms. This is a year before Star Wars. And uh, now that we've set the table here, let's bring in our third guest to talk about this. And uh, fan and studio relations, someone that knows a little bit about that from the time and and since my good friend doug drexler
3: gee it's great to be back <laughs>
1: <laughs> and i the man who needs no introduction but i'll try anyway oscar winner for uh, makeup on mask emmy multiple emmys on makeup and visual vision that's
3: mike westmore's mask did i say mask <laughs> <laughs> but uh, mike would share it with me <clears> he would share it with you
1: and you would share your dick tracy Heck actual yes, oscar with him that's funny. I love him. But, no, in all the years of uh, Next Gen and DS9 and Voyager and Enterprise, uh, across uh, CGI, visual effects, graphics, you name it, and then Battlestar Galactica and on and on.
3: Which Battlestar? Uh, here we can Come go spinning off into it. You a
1: a quasi-kid in the 70s. Yes, Ron Moore's Battlestar will We'll
3: specify. Yeah, that. well, you know, it's just that I find that the Ron's Battlestar is – almost as much a descendant of Star Trek as mm-hmm. it is Galactica. And that's a whole nother
1: story. Yeah. Even DS9. But how about this memo? Is this not amazing? The whole thing is amazing.
3: The the, the memo is amazing on so many levels. Um, just, I mean, I, I lived through the whole, uh, uh, you know, fan rebellion thing through the 60s and into the 70s and getting the show back and um And, and we used to get letters from Gene. Anybody who bought anything from Lincoln Enterprises would get communiques from the Mm -hmm. great bird himself who would, and a lot of this memo is reflected in there. And of course, uh, what, what's fascinating is Gene trying to explain to, uh, a a producer the complexion of the fandom, which I read this and I recognize so much of it. And it means so much to me, and it makes me fall in love with them all over again. Because <laughs> uh, I, 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 what I read here, I, I, and, and this is new stuff. I see why we were crazy about this guy, and he really understood us, and he, and 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 we were important. The fans were important to Gene, and the fans knew it. And whenever Gene was around, they always felt that way. Yeah. Uh, it, now, a, c-
1: a cynic would say that he engineered a lot of that. Well.
3: Yeah, I mean, and I understand that as well, that when we talk about what's the fan's attitude, which is something you want to talk about here because it goes into it in the memo, towards the studio, a lot of that was created by Gene Roddenberry. My impression of Paramount and NBC, was mostly NBC, uh, was that they were like an evil empire that wasn't Mm -hmm. letting him do what he wanted to do. And I wanted him to do anything he wanted to do. (laughs) I, I I love the show. So much, I was on his side, and I felt like he was uh, being abused. Although I will say that, as years go by and we uncover more and more things like this document that we're looking at now, or some of the stuff in uh, Cushman's books, uh, I've read memos from Robinson that came from NBC Mm -hmm. about episodes. And for years, I had always mostly heard Gene talk about they're a bunch of dummies, the Gene side of things. Yeah, Yeah, but. Really, some of those memos from Robinson from NBC were damn good and made really good points and opened my eyes up to, you know, Gene had his own attitude about NBC and felt like he was being pushed around. And he kind of, uh, through his closeness to fandom, he kind of spun this evil empire. Uh, I don't really think they're an evil empire and that they were trying to, you know, crush Gene Roddenberry. But... Star Trek was such an unusual thing, and to expect them to understand, it's really almost impossible. And I read this memo, which is just absolutely wonderful, and I encourage anyone to read this. I I, I read this, and I have, and through my thirty-seven years in the business and dealing with producers and directors and stuff like this, I have the funny feeling that Jerry Eisenberg just looked at it for two seconds and said, "I'm going to lunch," (laughs) because he can't. It's hard for most people to understand. Right. And really, I, I'll tell you that having been, uh, you know, a Trek fan, and you notice I don't say Trekkie. No, that's uh, what I do. Yeah, uh, is, is that back then, Trekkie was a derogatory term that the press was using to, you know, denigrate, right. to 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 diminish us. And so you hated to be called a Trekkie. It was like a groupie.
1: Right. It was a groupie, a was, cultist of the teeny bopper, running around yeah. with the ears on. Right. The,
3: the term has actually. Shed that over Mellow, the
1: years, uh, transcended.
3: It's transcended it, you know, because fans have shown that there's, you know, there's more to them. I mean,
1: right. But but it's 1976. This is a year before Star Wars. People don't think about no. franchises. No, there are not Comic Cons. You're talking about respect and, and 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 people getting it. This is in, This is on the level of. I remember the old days when a, a fan con would move into a hotel for the first time, and the hotel would take their money. No one got it back then. They were it was all it was just the kids. They didn't get it that if they if they did it right, they could make a ton of money. But the the co- hotels that would you know like understaff their bar and their restaurants and had the surly waitresses that would look at the kids in costumes and before people got how much money they could make off these people in a good way. I'm not being you know. But now we were we're soaked in. 24-7 franchises and superheroes and everybody gets, you know, the geeks won. Yeah. All of that. And Star Trek is pioneering, Gene is pioneering it on, in the entertainment industry, Star- much less in culture.
3: Star Trek, it was the first time they'd ever seen anything like this before. Right. Now it's pretty common. Exactly, yeah. You know, but back then it was kooky, fringe stuff. I mean, half it- of what this memo is about is explaining just the basic
1: dynamics between a fandom and a corporate owner and of creators and all of that. And He's having to put it in those terms for the first time because people had no experience with
3: you, it. You know, you have to re- also remember that back then and, and for a while after that, that science fiction in general mm-hmm. to people who were not into it was considered kid stuff and stupid. You know, comic books were considered for, you know, kids. low grade morons right. and kids.
1: Right. Not even. You know,
3: my, I listen. I still have my comic books from the 60s. I still have them. And both my parents were concerned that I had comic books, you know. Uh, but it's a whole different then thing. Then or now. like in the 90s? Oh, then. Then no, no, I mean, all, they once I started making it in the business, they were like, well, I guess he knew something that we didn't see, you know. Uh My father particularly, you know. Uh, because I, mean, I remember back like in 1967, after – getting a report card that was just okay, probably. My father said, if you spend half as much time on your schoolwork as you do on that goofy television... He was a Star Trek fan. He loves Star Trek. If you spend half as much time on your schoolwork as you did on that television show, you'd be all right. I love to remind him of that now, (laughs) you know. Uh, But, you know, it's... uh, Gene... There was a... You know, earlier we had spoken about how two Star Trek fans can meet who've never met each other before Mm -hmm. and feel connected right away.
1: Have a universal language.
3: A universal language. But the thing was that um, Gene and the fans had that same relationship. We felt like we knew him. He felt like he knew us. And when he spoke, we knew he knew us. When I read this memo, I go, this guy knows. This is us. He's talking Mm -hmm. and he understands. But I'm sure that this was thrown away. (laughs) <laughs> I was thrown away, you know, I, I, I don't believe it was taken seriously. Uh, well, who knows? I, I don't yeah. know Jerry Eisenberg. Uh, you he know did, what I remember? He didn't really. I was trying to find that. He didn't really have much of a career. Really? Yeah. You know, I, one of the things I remember, I think I read an interview with him. It may have been. They were doing Star Trek Interstellar still. Mm-hmm. The yeah.
1: newsletter. The newsletter. Not and, the missing 19th series. Yeah. Okay.
3: <laughs> <laughs> and I think there was an interview with Jerry Eisenberg in one of the Star Trek Interstellars. I love those. They were, they were wonderful.
1: The know. official uh, yeah. newsletter from Lincoln and Yeah. And I,
3: and I there was one thing that Eisenberg said that I think back on regularly. And he said what we would really love. He says, first of all, our... Uh, our, our high bar is 2001. Mhm. And what we really what I believe is that there could be another Star Trek movie every couple of years and it could be a fr- great franchise like James Bond. Mhm. I remember reading that and going, "Oh my god, wouldn't that be fantastic?" You know, I remember I think it was in TV Guide after the second season. Or during the second season, there was some chatter about doing a Star Trek movie between the seasons. Do you I,
1: remember, that? there's been yeah, I don't remember it from the time, but I've come across places where I've seen Gene say, "You know, we were even think, trying to figure yeah. out how to do a
3: TV movie." In the there, there yeah. used to be a little yellow page in TV yes. guide called TV v- Teletype. Ah! Yes, <laughs> that's how I kept up with I'm, all the Phase Two. The- Every TV guide, I went right there hoping to see Star. Right. Right. My, right. My vision was so attuned to the word Star Trek. And, you know, no Internet yet. It was all magazine stands and stuff. You weren't reading it in Starlog and Entertainment Weekly yet? Well, there wasn't one. <laughs> there wasn't any yet. But I mean, Thank you. I could remember, I would look through even the teen heartthrob magazines like Tiger Beat and stuff like that, looking for an article on Leonard Nimoy or something. And I could flip. You know, I remember the old George Reeves Superman. Most people listening won't, probably won't remember this. There's a scene where he catches these crooks. And there's supposed to be so much money in the stack. And he like flips it by its ear and he goes, you're, you're, you're missing two dollars. <laughs> I was like that with magazines. I could flip through a copy of Tiger Beat, look past all the teen heartthrob stuff and pick out Star Trek instantly. Even today, Skip sitting in a Sherman restaurant in the uh, oh, yeah, exactly. David Cassidy, even today, sitting in a restaurant or on a train or a plane. If someone says Star Trek 50 feet mm-hmm. behind me, I hear it. My brain is still tuned, that search, looking for stuff all the time.
1: It is a finely tuned brain, Doug. <laughs> I would never, never doubt that to the Star Trek frequency.
3: <laughs> I really, I'm not kidding.
1: But I, in this memo, he's even talking about things that people, people aren't even into then. But now we look back and go, well, yeah. He, he's both warning about the dangers of someone coming along and defrauding Fans and having it fall back on the studio, but at yeah. the same time, the studio should not get in and make and shut down "quote unquote" unofficial conventions. Very smart. Think about you know he was saying you've got to walk a middle line, and I know that's like people going over because like, what is he talking about? But he he saw the dangers both ways. Oh,
3: he was way ahead of his time. Brand
1: and and cautioning, time. and you know, like we said, he he had a hand in setting up that attitude because no doubt the, that because you said a fan rebellion. I was going to ask you that, but because we a lot of, we talk about the fan revival, but when you say the fan rebellion, yeah. against a rebellion against who?
3: Well, I mean, you know, NBC, NBC mostly,
1: right? Which then over the movie era, then transmogrified to Paramount itself. Yeah, right. We were going to show them, <clears throat> right? You know, and we did. Well, I and mean, he, and he says <laughs> that in here in his in his rewrite. He says it's that feeling. We Now we say fan ownership of a property. But yeah. he was saying we fought City Hall and we won. Yeah.
3: Well, it's like I said. Uh, I, I don't know if it was the last show, but as a matter of fact, it was the last show. Uh, and we had mentioned uh, Assignment Earth. And I had been part of the, you know, right. the fan rebellion. I had been in two newspapers, articles about me for, you know, organizing kids. And it really you know came from B. Joe. Here, here's a kid. You're still trying to figure out who you are. And this tells Mm -hmm. you that you could have an effect on the outside world. And television and your favorite TV show is is pretty important, you know. (laughs) Um, I was watching Assignment.
1: And it was the the time for that. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's the 60s, so late 60s. So people are protesting. Getting involved. Getting involved, getting activistic about about a lot of subjects. So it was the times also.
3: Well, I mean, so it it was Assignment Earth. I'm watching Assignment Earth. I don't know how many people remember this, but the announcer came on during the credits to assure us that there would be a third season. They didn't say, please stop writing letters, but basically that's what they were saying because they were being overwhelmed.
1: Yeah. Um, And that it never happened. I mean, the monkeys had a big writing campaign, (laughs) but it was a a rock band. I mean, it was like you expect that. Yeah,
3: and it wasn't organized. The Star Trek fans were very organized Mm -hmm. and very militant. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, the other thing that uh, about this letter here. Uh, aside from the fact that it shows you how tuned in he was to the fans, you know um, it 's full of uh, cross outs and handwritten notes, yeah. and it shows you how his mind works as far as rewriting goes but the but part of it is uh, when you're writing a letter like this to someone who's a producer and carries some weight. You have to be political about the way you write and say things. And he's kind of pushing the boundaries here a little bit, but he's still going in and changing a word that sounds too imperious. He he sounds like he's being too imperious and changing it to something more moderate. Right. And it's really – you have to.
1: Well, and he's, and he's also coming at it from the guy who's been slightly dethroned in well, favor of – it's the same kind of dynamic that will happen a few years later with with Harv Bennett. Yeah, it's been he's been dethroned a little. That,
3: let me uh, let me tell you, to see Gene put in a position like this was heartbreaking for people like me and the fans. You didn't you didn't first you see your your favorite show canceled, and then you see them taking it away from. It looks like it's being taken away from Gene, and that really really makes your blood boil. Um, so. The fans were very much behind him. They were very militant, and they didn't sit on their hands. You know, it was a very, really interesting time for fans.
1: Yeah. I just, I just, what you say about this winding up in the trash can, file thirteen. Uh, who knows what Eisenberg did? How he reacted to this? We don't have. I, he, we haven't found. If there was a reply, we haven't seen one yet. Yeah, I mean, but he, the fact that it exists. Yes, I,
3: I think it's amazing. It's really amazing. I'd love to know what he thought of it. I would say that probably the majority of producers and executives, not because they're bad people. But because it seems so crazy, it seems absurd, <laughs> you know. And I think that uh, Paramount, over the years, I think has been uh, pretty generous to the fans. Uh, and and while they didn't, un- they don't understand the fans as well mm-hmm. as Gene did. Um, uh, they have pretty much let the fans have. There have been some altercations here and there, right? You know, but mostly Paramount uh, let the fans have their fun Uh, I I have no anger towards them I I did have anger towards them as a kid because I didn't fully understand you know I just thought that it was the evil empire and how could they not know how wonderful this is we all know it but that's not the way life works in general you know
1: Now we can just say shut up and take (laughs) it." We have all the memes, but Star Trek was inventing the memes before memes were cool.
3: Yeah.
1: Well, listen, Doug, we've barely scratched the surface here, but we've got some more fun stuff to get into. Let's have you back for another show coming up. I'd love that. Great.
3: Great. Because you know I don't love anything as much as this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The Trek Files is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All documents are available at facebook.com slash files. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek, that's me, and Portal 47 at larrydemachek.com.